Chapter 23, verse 46 is our main passage. We'll look at a little bit at the surrounding verses. But I'm going to start you out at sort of a side trip or a pre-trip into 1 Corinthians 11. So you can stay in Luke 23 because we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 at the end of the message. Now, everybody look below me, in front of you, on the table. I know as a little boy, I would see the communion table and I would be always instantly frightened. Because I had sinned a lot that week and I thought God was going to strike me dead if I took communion. And I can't not take communion because then my curious parents will ask me what I've done. So (laughs) it was always kind of an interesting conundrum that I'd find myself in. And we did it the first Sunday of the month as well. But that's really not how you approach the table. And what we learn in communion is what Paul, well, we learn a lot, but Paul teaches us specifically. And I I want to draw your attention. So you've got to look at me. And you've got to hear this because this is, this is where this entire sermon is pressing toward. Everything that we talk about in this sermon is preparing us for what we're going to do at the end of the service in communion. Here's what Paul says. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, here it is, you proclaim, the Greek means preach, you preach the Lord's death until he comes. You preach the Lord's death until he comes. The very center of communion is the death of Jesus Christ for us. And so we're going to prepare our hearts, we're going to prepare our minds, we're going to undergird ourselves with that truth. Your job Your job is to interact with what I'm going to preach. Your job is to not be neutral and static, but to think through. And I want you to be on Golgotha, the hill where Christ was crucified. I want you to be standing near the cross where four women and the Apostle John were. And I want you to hear, I want you to see, I want you to imagine with holy imagination, meaning your imagination guided by Scripture. I want you to imagine... Jesus actually dying. It's almost unfathomable. How could God die? In some sense, he can't, and in some sense, he can. You know, it's been controversial all throughout the centuries of Christianity. How do you answer, how could God die? Well, we're not going to really look at that. We're going to proclaim the death of Jesus. So I invite you to look at Luke chapter 23 and verses um, 45 and 46 in particular. Now, I read this past week that Christians in Africa, a little village in Africa, listen, they pray that they will die a good death. And a good death to these villagers, you've got to hear this, this is a true story. A good death to these villagers is not one you die in old age. It's not one you die painlessly. It's not even a quick death. That's not what they pray for. Here's what they pray for. They pray for an opportunity that before they die, they will be able to have family gather around them where they can express their love and give a charge to their family. That's, to them, a good death. It was, I think, a year ago this last weekend, wasn't it, Marie, when your husband died? That was a good death. Painful. Dean almost, I mean, literally to the point where the nurses kicked people out of his room, hours before he went home to be with the Lord. He was 
he had people gathered around him coming into his room and he would in some cases ask for forgiveness in other cases give a charge to live faithfully for Jesus in other cases remind them of what God has faithfully done for them he died a good death Sue Jaquila from our church a little bit before Dean died I was there that evening before she died Sue was so tired she could only lay down on the couch. She couldn't even get up. But my last sight of Sue Jaquila before I kissed her goodbye was she's laying there while everybody around her is singing praises and her arm is straight up towards God worshiping. That's a good death. Do you pray for a good death? Let me, let me ask. I know this is not a comfortable question. Are you ready? Are you prepared to even die? It's a hard question. No one has died a better death than Jesus Christ. And I want to give you three things, two of which I think can, I hope, prepare us even better for communion. And one of them that can prepare us for that day that it is is appointed that we're going to die. Let me give you three looks at this. First is this one. Jesus died. He died a perfect death. He died better than a good death. He died a perfect death. Now read with me if you would. Let's bury ourselves into the passage in Luke. Here's what he says. Here's what he writes. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And I want you to underscore the very next word. Then, because we're going to draw this out. Then Jesus, skip a little bit, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Did you notice Did you notice, have you ever even realized that the great veil in the temple, listen, here's the temple, you've got the court of Gentiles, you go in a little bit further, you've got the court of Israel, you go a little bit further, you've got the women's court, you've got the men's court, and then you've got the priest's court, and in the priest's court, unless you're a priest, you couldn't go that far, you've got this temple, it wasn't really huge, it was almost box-like, very, very tall, and you go into that, that temple, the sanctuary of God, and you've got the first chamber, the holy place, and you go a little further, there's the most holy place, and separating the holy place from the most holy place is a massive, massive curtain. It weighed hundreds of pounds. Light blocking. It was thick. It was material that was the best material. It's extremely high, higher than you could ever reach. If I remember my statistics right, it was between 20 and 30 feet high. It was a massive veil. Did you ever notice that that veil and that temple that separated the holy place from the most holy of holies, it was torn in two, listen, before Jesus spoke and died. Have you ever drawn out the significance of that? You know, Matthew and Mark, this is why people are confused about this. To be honest with you, it's why I'm confused. If you're reading right now in the harmony of the Gospels, you'll see that Matthew and Mark, they don't mention that. And it almost sounds like it was torn after he died. But they're not writing with the precision and the purpose specificity that Luke is. Luke makes it utterly clear that the curtain of the temple was torn in two and then Jesus spoke. Now, why am I stressing this? Well, let me take you on a little bit of a review. We'll come back to the curtain. 
Last week, when we looked at the sixth statement, it is finished. Remember, tetelestai is the Greek word. We looked at, we studied this whole concept of redemption. If you remember last week, and if you weren't there, I'll encapsulate it very, very briefly. Redemption was a term that meant to free people who were captives in war or captives in slavery. And in order to free them from captivity and bondage, then you had to pay a purchase price. You had to literally buy people out of captivity and out of slavery. And that purchase price, friends, is a very familiar word to us. It's called the ransom. We think of it kind of when somebody kidnaps somebody very famous, their child, and they have to pay the ransom to get their child back. There's been horrible, horrible suffering and tragedy about that. But the ransom price is what you pay to bring people out of captivity. And the message of the Bible is this. We're all captives to sin. You didn't have to take a course to learn how to sin. You didn't need to read a manual to figure out how to sin. Listen, it's on board your humanity. It's on board my humanity. We're all natural born sinners. And we're all in captivity to sin. We're in bondage to sin. And we need somebody, somebody to free us from that captivity, somebody to redeem us, somebody who will pay the, the ransom price to buy us out of that bondage. Because everybody, again, has knowingly and willingly sinned. Listen, sin just simply means you come up short of God's holy standard. If you're, if you're shooting an arrow at a target and you miss the mark, that's literally what sin means. It means to miss the mark. The bullseye is God's holy perfection. To sin is to do anything other, and we all do that. We all do that all the time. And God has pronounced over every one of our souls a word that we don't like to see, we don't want to see, but it's there nonetheless, guilty. Somebody might be here thinking, why, why is God so persnickety about sin? Why is it such a big deal to him? Well, let me put it in a, in a story form for you. We just came through the Super Bowl not too long ago. Imagine that it's the Super Bowl game. And it's, there's only enough time for one final play. It's fourth down, seconds to go. The team with the ball is behind by five points. They're three feet from the end zone, and they snap the ball. You ready? The clock is ticking. There's only a few seconds left to run one more play. They snap the ball. They do a quarterback keeper. He runs almost in slow motion toward the end zone, toward the goal line. He's got to cross that goal line, get the ball to the goal line and the defense stops him two inches from the line and the clock expires. You got that? Now picture the referees. They huddle. And in their huddle, you don't know it, but they're saying things like, you know what? What a great game. Man, that offense tried so hard. They had everything. They put everything they had to it. And they came up two inches of short. That doesn't seem right. Let's give them a touchdown. They break from their own huddle and they come back and their arms go up 
for a touchdown. Can you imagine the scandal? Can you imagine the biggest stage of sports, the scandal that would erupt from that breach of justice? We don't want referees. Listen, we don't want police. We don't want judges breaking justice. We want them to get it right. But listen, this is what people do when hell is on the line. People who all come up short with God, they want God, the great referee, to break from the huddle with his son and the Holy Spirit and just open the door to eternal life, give them a cosmic mulligan, a do-over, and just give them a pass into eternity. God can't do that. God wouldn't do that. And honestly, friends, you don't want God doing that. Because when justice breaks down, society breaks down. Just go to Africa and you'll see this. He will not break justice. He will not give you a pass into eternal life. If you come up two inches short, you're two inches short. You will not get the points. So he found a way. He made a way. Listen, he made this way before he created the earth. You know that, right? The plan of redemption was fully in place before one Adam was created by God. He knew fully what was going to happen. He made a way to redeem us. Because every play we've ever run, listen, this is you now and this is me. Every play you've ever run in life morally has fallen short of the goodness of God. God is perfect. God is holy. God is is without sin, we've not been able to run a play yet that matches God's holiness. Well, some of you might say, well, listen, I've seen people win the lottery and give millions to people. Actually, what you normally see is people win the lottery and their lives are in ruin. I hope you don't play the lottery. Don't do it. Don't let your heart run after that junk. People give away money. They're philanthropic. philanthropic. They're good people then they're like God. No, they're not. Every good thing we've ever done, Bible, this, the Bible says, this is the hard truth, is worthless. It won't get admitted into the court of God's divine judgment. You want to hear God's frank words about this? Every righteous, every good thing we've ever done, in God's eyes, who is holy, it looks like the cloths that the Old Testament women would throw out after their period. That's exactly what Isaiah says. They're fit to be thrown out. There's nothing that we've ever done that is good enough for God to say, I'll give you the touchdown. I'll give you eternity. He has sent his son to do what we could not. He played the game of life perfectly. Jesus did in every word, every action, every deed. He did the exact fulfillment of God's holy, righteous standards, always satisfying God's holy expectations. Listen, this is what Jesus has done. He has earned righteousness. Let me put it in a different metaphor. Jesus lived 30 to 33 years. He earned righteousness and it made, he filled the bank account of God's mercy and God's forgiveness with his own righteousness. And what we're going to see in his perfect death is that when he died, that money, that currency, that moral clearance in God's eyes made it into a deposit into the account. It deposited into the account and it could be drawn off 
the checks could be write, written to ransom us out of sin. His death deposits it next week. You're going to see his resurrection. It clears the bank. He earned righteousness. Listen, if Jesus had committed one sin, well, you have brothers and sisters, most of you. He had four brother, little younger brothers and a whole lot of sisters. If Jesus one time selfishly said, I'm not going to share my toy with you, then his death was worthless. The check that he would have written to ransom us out of sin would have been nothing but worthlessness in God's eyes. Not once did Jesus fall short. Every single time he hit the bullseye of God's holy standards, he did what we could not do. And he signed that ransom check with his own perfect blood, authorizing it with his own perfect death. Remember, we're approaching communion where we are preaching and proclaiming the death of Jesus. Jesus Christ did what we could not do. He earned righteous favor. So back to the curtain which Matthew said was torn from the top to the bottom. And what we're seeing in that is this. Now, you've got to understand this because this is going to be now making sense why it precedes his death. God took the Old Covenant. He took the Old Testament. Remember, in Paul's words, we celebrate the New Covenant in communion. God took the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Old Sacrificial System, and He tore it up. When He ripped that curtain from the top to bottom, He was taking the Old Covenant and He was tearing it up, saying that now the law has brought you to My Son. The law is done in the sense that its purpose was to show you your sinfulness. Its purpose was to show you your great need for redemption. Its purpose was to lead you to My Son Jesus and my son Jesus just died and made the deposit into my bank account and he's going to start writing ransom checks. We're done with Old Testament sacrifices. There was not another sacrifice that ever was needed to be made in that temple upon the death of Jesus Christ. God ripped it up. He lived the law perfectly on our behalf. He did what we could not do. He died as our sacrifice, doing what the death of an animal could not do. When the curtain was torn, the temple became obsolete. The high priest became obsolete because Jesus is now our high priest, mediating between God and man. Priests became obsolete because guess what, Christian brother and sister? You are a priest in the temple of God. You're able to have access to God and to serve Him all your life. Animal sacrifices became obsolete for the superior blood of Christ has taken away sin. The curtain became obsolete. Now Jesus is the living curtain. Now we have access to God the Father through Jesus the Son. That's why He ripped the veil. I mean, you do know, right, that that curtain, that curtain was not there to beautify the temple and make it decorative. You know that, right? That curtain was an utter eternal or at least utter human reminder that there was a barrier between you and God. You couldn't get into his presence. That's what that curtain did. Because there was only one person 
On one day a year, they could go through that curtain. That was the high priest. And the only way that he could go through the curtain was when he sacrificed an animal for his own sin, sprinkled on him that animal's blood, that innocent substitute. And then he took blood into through that curtain into the Holy of Holies. We're going to talk about it in a minute. And he took a little reed, a little branch of hyssop with its bunchy little flowers and dipped it into the bowl of blood and sprinkled it on the mercy seat of the Holy of Holies. That's the only way he could go into the Holy of Holies one day a year. That's why they tied a rope around his ankles. That's why they put bells in the bottom of his robe. Because if he didn't go in the right way, he'd be struck dead and then they could pull his dead body out. That's the terror of being in the presence of God. The curtain reminded you of that. And God says, my son has died a perfect death. That curtain is done. And when you come to my son Jesus in faith, you come to me. You have living access to my presence through the perfect death of my son. You know, Exodus chapter 12, verse 6 tells us that the Passover lamb was to be killed at twilight. There's a reason I'm telling you this. Literally, that means in Exodus 12, that word twilight literally means between the evenings, which in Jewish mindset was between 3 and 6 p.m. Now, are you catching the times? Because Jesus died Friday at what time? 3 o'clock. The men would be lined up. Listen, men, you're there. You're there. You're Jews now. In your holy reimagination, you're a Jew and you got one other man in your family or one of your servants that can go with you. Every man was allowed to bring one other person. You walk up those 15 steps of the Temple Mount. You go into that massive, massive court of the Gentiles. That's as far as a Gentile could go. You can go further and you got your little lamb, your little Israel lamb. Somebody joked about that one other time. Jack Templeton did. You've got your lamb of Israel, not your Israeli lamb, and you're carrying it now into the interior courts and you've got a railing that separates you from the court of men and the court of priests. You can't go any further and you've got priests all lined around it with trumpets in their hands and bowls and knives. It's an unbelievable scene. Thousands of men are packed in there with their bleeding little sheep and all of a sudden the trumpets blare and that's the signal. The priest gives you the knife. You slit the carotid arm artery of your lamb, the innocent substitute that's got to die for yours and your family's sins. And the priest gathers it in the bowl, passes it up the line of the priest, and they sprinkle it against the altar, throw it down into the conduit behind the altar. And then they take your, your lamb and they clean it. They put it up on hooks and they clean it. And then they give you back your lamb And you and that other person with you, you're going to now carry your lamb to where you're going to celebrate the Passover meal and you're going to take a pomegranate spit and you're going to run it right through the mouth of that dead lamb, right out its back end. And you might take, sometimes they did, another pomegranate spit and you're going to run it right crossways behind the shoulder blade. And all the while, fathers, you're going to remind your sons, we've got to be very, very careful because we can't cannot break even one bone of this lamb. It's entirely possible, friends, 
that the moment, it's very likely, that the moment that those priests blew those trumpets signifying it was time to sacrifice, it was at that moment likely that Jesus died. And where seconds before God the Father in a mighty terror ripped that veil for all eternity. The ripped curtain was the game clock expiring, and in one final surge, Jesus crossed the goal line of a perfect death, signing the ransom checks to free his people from the bondage of sin. That's a perfect death. Let me turn it just a little bit. Jesus died in perfect peace. Look at that first word that he spoke. Father. Friends, have you heard of the word scapegoat? Someone who bears the blame on behalf of another. Well, listen, let me tell you about another festival. I just told you about the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was an eight-day festival. The Passover was the first of that festival. There's another one that the Jews celebrated called the Day of Atonement. It was one of their three greatest festivals. And what they would do is they would take two goats, not lambs, not sheep, goats. They would take two goats and the high priest would cast lots over those two goats. And the one selected would be the one that was to be killed. And he would kill that goat and he would collect that blood and he would take that bowl of blood in all of his high priestly garb and he would walk into the Holy of Holies and he would do what no one else could do and only what he could do one day a year on the Day of Atonement. He would pass through that divide, that barrier, that curtain. He would pass through it and he would take that branch of hyssop and he would dip it into that bowl and he would sprinkle the mercy seat and then he would leave very, very quickly. And it symbolized something very, very powerful. It symbolized that that goat had died to appease the wrath of God upon Israel. This was a day where Israel would receive forgiveness. Passover was a day when you and your family would receive forgiveness. This was for the nation of Israel. The wrath of God would justly be falling onto Israel. They deserved his wrath as punishment for their sins. But the day of atonement was a way that that dead goat, that innocent little goat was sacrificed on their behalf. They needed a substitute. And that goat was that substitute. But then the high priest would come back out. And now he would walk to the live goat. It was tied up. Usually tied up with scarlet rope. Because that scarlet rope was to be a shadow of Jesus, who would die and shed his blood for us. And it would, it would be tied up with a rope. And he would walk over to that goat and now in front of everybody, listen, this was a festival. This was a sober festival. And they would all be families gathered there. And the high priest would take his hands and he would put it on the head of that live goat. And he would pray the sins of Israel to transfer over to that goat. So all of the blame, all of the breach of fellowship because of sin would now be transferred from the community of Israel onto the head of that live goat. And when he was finished 
Someone who was pre-selected would lead that goat out into the desert, so far out in the desert that it could never return. It began to develop in later stages to where they would actually lead that goat to a cliff and push the goat over so that it could never risk that goat returning. The imagery was from Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The scapegoat's job was to carry the blame away. The first goat that was sacrificed was to atone for our sins. And the second one was to carry them away so that they'll never be brought back to the account of Israel where they could be blamed. That's why Micah says, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Here you've got Psalm saying, far away as the east is to the west. And Micah says into the sea, by the way, think like a Jew. You're living in Israel. You've just got a narrow track of land separating the north from the south, Egypt in the south, and you've got Assyria up in north. You've got this narrow little isthmus of land. It's called the land bridge. And if you go to the east of Israel, you've got nothing but desert. And you go to the west of Israel, you've got nothing but the Mediterranean Sea. So now you can understand why David writes, as far as the east, the trackless wasteland of the desert, as far as the east is from the west, the plunging depths of the Mediterranean, God both sends it out in the desert and plunges it to the bottom of the ocean. He'll never bring back your sin again. Why? Because that live goat that was killed has atoned. It wrote the ransom check. You know, that ceremony was only effective. Listen, you've got to understand this. It was only effective because it was empowered by what it pointed to. Listen, the death of an animal could not take away sin. It's an amoral being. It cannot choose to worship God. It cannot choose to, to overcome sin. It's an amoral being. The death of an animal never had atoning power. The only reason it had any power to free people from their sins is because it pointed forward to the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Jesus of God, who will die. And he empowered those animal sacrifices with his own death. That's the only reason it had any kind of power. And all of a sudden you get back to this final statement of Jesus and he begins, Father, listen, just moments before this, don't you remember? Moments before this, he's crying out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He can't even call him Father at that point. He's the sin bearer. He's the dying goat and he's the scapegoat. He's both dying for sin and he's delivering it away. He's the one that's become a curse for us. His father turns his face away and for the first time in all of eternity, there's been a breach in their relationship. My God, my God. And now he's back, Father. His atoning work was done. He finished it. He had both died for sin and he'd carried it away as far as the east is from the west. Now fellowship has restored. Now their relationship was once again son to the Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Are you seeing the significance, brother and sister in Christ? Are you seeing the significance of this for us? 
Listen, we were separated from God because of our sins. We were objects of His person or His perfect, holy, and just wrath. But when you put your trust in Jesus and you repented from your sins, the ransom that He paid in His death, that's the first goat, purchased you out of captivity, purchased you out of the penalty of sin. But so many Christians forget there's another goat. There's a scapegoat. Your sins are carried away. They're never going to come back. If you're haunted by guilt and you're haunted by shame, it's your own condemnation because God says there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The scapegoat made sure of it. His death made possible the great mercy of God for us so that his, we can say his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Brother and sister, look at me. You can say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit because he is your father because of Jesus. But let me turn it one more time. Not only did Jesus die the perfect death and Jesus died in perfect peace, able to say, Father, Jesus died as our perfect example. Now, what I've done so far, let me give you the behind the scenes to Tim Ackley's mind. reason I've constructed this sermon like this is two points. The first two prepared you for communion. This one prepares you to die one day. Ever since, friends, my own father died and a really, really close friend, Chip. Death for me is just a serious thing. I just don't take it lightly. I don't even like watching movies that depict real death. I don't like reading books. I just don't. It's too uncomfortable for me. Yet the Bible makes it clear that should Jesus tarry long enough, friends, you and I, we've got an appointment with death. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And then we're all, all of a sudden comforted by Paul's words, Oh, death, where is your sting? And we understand Christ. If you think of a bee, Christ took the terrifying stinger of death into his own body. And death, it only had one sting. And he took that stinger into his own body. And all of those, all of us who trust in him, we can have the courage, we can have the confidence and the peace to know what lies on the other side of this life. I like what Alfred Edersheim, that Jewish historian, said. Christ disarmed death by burying its arrow in his own heart. Death has no more arrows. The Apostle Peter wrote that though Jesus was killed by lawless people, he was ultimately, quote, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Listen, know this. Jesus died by divine appointment, not by cruel humanity, he could have walked, listen, he could have walked away in the garden. Don't you remember when they, that mob and those soldiers came to arrest him and they, and he said, I, here I am. And they fell down on their faces, struck mute with the power of God. He could have walked away at that moment. Don't you remember when Pilate was interviewing him, questioning him? Jesus had every opportunity to gain his own freedom. 10,000 angels were at his beck and call and more. He could have commanded them down to free him before one punch landed on his face. But he said to his disciples, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord 
And if I have authority to lay it down, I've got the authority to take it up. In fact, friends, his death came earlier than normal for a crucified victim. You know, Rome was professional at crucifying people. They had maximum shame and they had the ability to make it linger for days. It normally took days for a crucified victim to die. Here's what they did. They were on that cross. The Sabbath was coming in just a couple hours. The Jewish priests sent word to Pilate, would you please hasten their deaths so that we could get their bodies off during the Passover Sabbath. And so Pilate sends an order to the, the death squads on Golgotha. And they take an, either an iron bar or they take a sledgehammer. And they go to one criminal, they break his legs. They go to the other criminal, they break his legs. Because once you can't push up, you can't exhale on the cross. And once you can't exhale, you're going to die of asphyxiation within minutes. And they certainly did. They go to Jesus, they go to break his legs. And all of a sudden, they find that he's already dead. It caught everybody by surprise. He he died by divine appointment. And this is important because Numbers chapter 9, as I already alluded to, it says you can't break one bone in the Passover lamb. Listen, men, you take that lamb, you take that slain lamb, that sacrificed animal, and you go back to your family, and when you roast it, you can't break a bone. And listen, when you eat the lamb, you had to eat it carefully because you were not allowed to break even a bone while eating it. Psalm 34, 20 says he keeps all his bones. This is a reference to Christ. Not one of them is broken. Jesus died on his own power on a divine calendar even before they could break his own legs. And he says, Father, just before he dies, even I think as the final breath was coming out of his lungs, it created these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Kids, parents, teach this to your children. That was often the first scripture that any Jewish child would ever learn. Because moms, when you put your little Jewish children to bed, this is what you prayed over them every night. Because Jews had this superstitious belief that there were seven and a half million demons that roamed around sitting on king's thrones and hovering over babies' cradles ready to eat and devour their children. That's what they believed. So every night they would go to bed, they would pray this precise scripture, Father, into your... They didn't say Father, God, into your hands I commit my children's spirit. And we read that God prays this prayer as he is dying. He gives his spirit into the loving, trusting, and extended hands of the Father. In fact, look at that word commit. It means to place, present, or deposit something into a trustworthy, secure place. It means what we mean when we get a bank security box and we put our wills and our precious jewelry and money in there. We put it in there to have the most secure access or the most secure security possible for those. It's what people do when they have something valuable they want to guard. He says, I I give you my spirit into the most secure, trustworthy hands that there are. They're yours, Father. 
You know, I read a story recently of a family whose little boy was suffering from a terminal illness. This is a true story. And at first, you know, obviously that little boy, he didn't understand what was happening to his life. He didn't happen. He didn't understand what was going on in his body. He would want to go out and play, but he wouldn't be able to because of his health. And he would watch other children play through the window and and he began to start to realize something's not right with me. And one time his mom read to him a story as she often did. And he sat on her lap and he read to her, read to him little Kenneth, a story of Sir Gallagher and Sir Lancelot and King Arthur and how the final glorious battle, so many knights met their wonderful end, their glorious end in battle to a knight. That's how you want to end. That's a good death. And when she finished reading that story, her son was silent for, for a while. And then he asked her the most dreaded question that she knew he was going to eventually ask. Mom, what is it like to die? Will it hurt? Now you can understand, right? The tears come to her eyes. She excuses herself to go to the kitchen to try to get her composure. She wants to be strong for her boy. She prays, God, please help me know the answer to his question. And God answered her prayer. She went back into the living room and she said, Kenneth, do you remember when you would play hard all day? And when evening came, you'd be so tired and you'd come in and you would just lie down in mommy and daddy's bed and you would fall asleep. But Ken, Kenneth, that wasn't your bed. That's not where you belonged. But you stayed there for a little while and, and in the morning you were always surprised to wake up and find yourself in your own bed. And you were there in your own bed because someone you loved, Daddy, he would come in and with his big strong arms he would pick you up and he would carry you to your own room. Kenneth, that's what death is like for us. One night you're very tired and you're very sleepy and you're going to fall asleep. And the next morning you're going to wake up and you're going to find yourself in, in your own room where you really belong because God has carried you from your home in this world to your home in heaven. Remarkably, that little boy's face showed that he got that. A few days later, he fell asleep, just as his mother had said. Friends, that's death for the believer. In fact, it even gets better because John tells us that Jesus died. It says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That, bow, that word bowed in the Greek, friends, it was the word for your head laying down on a soft pillow at night after a tiresome day. He trustingly died, falling asleep into the loving hands of his father. And for the believer, death is going from the land of the dying to the land of the living, from the land of tears to the land of unbridled joy. And when we fall asleep in Christ, we will wake to the beaming, glorious face of our loving Lord in our true home. Because our Heavenly Father carried us home. Paul said... This cup is the new covenant. Remember, that torn veil says the old covenant is obsolete. There's a new covenant. 
And it's in my blood, Jesus says. I came. I signed the check. My blood was the ink. So take this cup and take this bread in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink the cup, you preach, you proclaim my death, which was perfect, which was in peace, and which was your example. You proclaim it until I come back for you.